Father, we praise you again for another opportunity to meet and to worship you together and to remember the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Praise you, Father, that you did not spare your Son, but delivered him up for us all. And all of that began in time on that particular day when at just the right time he came, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem us all and to save us from the just and holy wrath that we deserved by taking upon himself the sins of the world and earning for all who would believe perfect righteousness so that we would be counted as good as God, as good as Christ. Not because we have earned it, but because he did. And we would be spared the penalty of sin, not because we paid it, but because he paid it. And so we worship you this morning. Now, as always, because of who you are and what you've done and continue to do in us, conforming us a little more each day to the image of Christ. Help us now, Father, to see him in his glory and to rejoice in him, to delight in him, to be in awe and wonder of him so that we might worship him rightly and all of it to the praise of your glory. Lord, these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Colossians chapter 1 for one more week. Colossians chapter 1. Anyone who has his finger on the pulse of our culture right now, even a little bit, is aware of the, what we might call the ambient hostility toward Christianity that, that seems to be growing in our world. And while it's true that nearly everyone in the Western world would say they like Jesus, except for maybe a few atheists, the reality is that most people really only like the Jesus of their imaginations. They like to imagine him as a great moral teacher. They like to imagine him as the defender of the poor, and he is certainly that. And they like to imagine him as the personification of goodwill towards men, and tolerance toward everyone and every belief. But if you press people about what Jesus actually claimed to be, if you speak of him as one who declared himself to be the only, the exclusive way to heaven, the preacher of the one and only true gospel, if you represent him as the eternal, eternal judge of all who failed to believe in him and trust him fully and solely for their eternal salvation, if you preach that he is one who will send many to their eternal damnation for failing to believe, then you will see their affection for Jesus shrivel up and turn to hostility in the blink of an eye. If you've listened to the news on Christian radio these days, it seems there's a growing parade of Christian leaders who seemed a little bit shocked by the reality of this ambient hostility. It's certainly nothing that we would call persecution for the most part. It's just less tolerance, more like, as I mentioned before, more like what was being experienced in the day when Peter wrote his first epistle, that kind of hostility. But many seem to be shocked and surprised by what appears to be a growing hostility toward Christianity. I mean, the media has become more hostile. The courts have become less tolerant of Judeo-Christian values. The legislature seems to have followed the suit of the courts. And chaplains are being kicked out of military positions for praying in Jesus' name. Students in public schools are being slapped with disciplinary measures for acting in a way that's consistent with their Christian beliefs. Government institutions are afraid to display anything that might look remotely Christian, and businesses are reticent to wish people a Merry Christmas. Although I will say that I went to Starbucks this week and the little girl who took my money wished me a Merry Christmas and I almost fell out the window <laughs> and, uh, and wished her a big, hearty 
Merry Christmas and wished I had time to share the gospel with her. But while these are disturbing trends, to be sure, they should not be shocking to us. Even if it were worse than it is, it shouldn't be any surprise. I mean, after all, Jesus himself said, if they hated me, they will hate you. They will hate you also. And the fact is, the world hates the real Jesus. Everybody likes the innocent, powerless baby in the manger with angels and donkeys and hay and mother and child and all of that. But the real Jesus, it's always been this way. So when it comes to celebrating Christmas, let us not become defenders of the holiday. And let us rather be loving proclaimers of the living Christ. Because while the true Jesus may be offensive to those who hate God, he is, after all, their only hope of salvation. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, the Apostle Paul said, by which we must be saved. And so as we worship the incarnate Son at the end of 2015, let's be sure we're worshiping not for what we want him to be, but for who he really is, as revealed in Scripture. And so here's the question. What child is this? What child is this? Last time, we were reminded that this was an important question that repeatedly asked in the gospel record. For example, the crowds asked in Matthew chapter 21, after Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, who is this man? And the disciples asked it in Mark chapter 4. You remember they got caught in the storm and Jesus was asleep and he woke up and said, hush, be still. And the sea became as glass and the disciples said, who is this man? And the Pharisees asked the question repeatedly, especially whenever Jesus said to someone, your sins are forgiven. And their response was, who is this man? Even Herod asked in Luke 9, after beheading John, and fearful that maybe John had come back from the dead to haunt him, he was wondering, who is this man? And even in Matthew 16, where Jesus is concerned that disciples get the answer to that question right, he leaned on them and asked them, who do you say that I am? I would suggest to you that eternity hangs on the answer to that question. Who do you say Jesus is? What child is this? This child is your only hope of salvation. And he is not a stingy savior. He is willing to grant salvation to all who come to him in faith. We began learning the answer to this question, what child is this, from Paul's letter to the Colossians, and so let's stand together in honor of his word and read just this small section of Colossians 1. Years ago, this passage, this first chapter, I committed this to memory and have never, never regretted doing that. And, and certainly, who would regret memorizing any passage of Scripture but this? When I need to see the glory of Christ, I come to Colossians 1. You go to the cross... You go to Colossians 1, this may be the most Christological passage in a condensed way in the New Testament. Beginning with verse 15 now, the Apostle Paul describing Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things come to hold together. He is the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth 
or things in heaven. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. You can be seated. What child is this? We saw last week in verse 15 that he is the image of God. We learned from the Greek last time that the word image here is icon or icon in the Greek. But icon rings true for us because we perhaps understand what an icon is. If you pull out a dollar bill or a penny, you see the image of a president of the United States. Jesus was the icon. Jesus is the one who makes the invisible God visible, so much so that Jesus could say, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. He is the icon of God. Jesus didn't merely bear the image of God. You and I and every human being bears the image of God. He is the image of God. He is the very personification of God in human flesh. And that's the whole argument of the book of Colossians. God in flesh. Secondly, we learned, what child is this? He's not only the icon of God, he is the son of God. And we saw that here in the same part of this narrative, or part of this doctrinal statement. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Firstborn, meaning he is the son of God. Firstborn is the heir. Firstborn is the, the highest in rank of all who have lived, whether in heaven or in earth. And I thought since we're reviewing, and I don't want to just keep repeating the things that I talked about last week. Could you turn with me just a little bit to the left, actually about half inch to the left, to the book of Daniel, chapter 7. Daniel, chapter 7. And here's Daniel receiving a vision. And it is about, I believe, what is going to happen when we read in Philippians that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father? What will that look like when that day comes? Well, God showed, apparently, he showed Daniel, and this is what he said. This is Daniel 7, verse 13. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man. By the way, Jesus repeatedly refers to himself as the son of man. He doesn't mean I am the son of a human man. What he means is I got this title, son of man, from God, and it is revealed in, Jan in Daniel chapter 7. He is the son of man. Now let's see what that title entails. One like the Son of Man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days. Who's that? It's got to be God the Father. And was presented before him, and to him, that is to the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples and nations and every man and every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will never be destroyed. This is the son of man, the son of God who will one day inherit all things. He is the firstborn. He is the highest in rank. The inheritance belongs to him. And by the way, just as a secondary application of this text. You know what we learn from this text? We learn something about humility, even though this text isn't referring to humility, but it informs another text where we find Jesus calling himself the Son of Man. It was right after the disciples, one of those times when they were arguing about who was the greatest. Remember that? And they come to Jesus, and Jesus kind of rebukes them, and he says this. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served. I said, well, wait, Daniel 7 says he comes to be served by all peoples, all nations. And Jesus is saying, that's true in its time. But right now, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, 
but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Why did he say that right then? Because that's what the disciples needed to hear. You are not here to be worshipped. You are not here to be served. Not even I, the Son of Man, am here to be served. Not yet. So rank yourself under and serve one another. Rank yourself under and minister to one another. Sacrifice for one another. Okay, so that was free. He is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God who became a Son of Man, the, the one who will inherit all that had been created in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Third, Jesus is the power of God. Look at verses 16 and 17. We read, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. It always amazes me when I think of Jesus as the creator. And certainly John 1 bears that out. Certainly Hebrews 1 bears that out again. That he is the creator of all things. But think of this, before anything else existed, the Son of God lived eternally with the other persons of the Godhead. He is the eternal Son, and that's why Paul can say almost almost absent-mindedly that he is before all things. Of course he's before all things. If he created everything, and John is right in saying that nothing that was created came into being except through Jesus, then of course he is before all things. If that's true of Jesus, then he existed before everything except God himself. That's why he didn't say, he didn't hesitate to say to the Pharisees in John chapter 8, before Abraham was, I what? I am. That's an eternity statement. I am. And they got it. We know they got it because they tried to kill him for saying it. Beloved, we need to realize that those precious little hands poking up from the manger 2,000 Decembers ago were the same hands that created the world into which he was now born. And not just the world, but the entire cosmos was the creative masterpiece of those hands. The Psalms refer to it, that is, the entire cosmos, as his handiwork. Sometimes I'll see one of my daughters sitting on the couch, haven't seen this in a little while, but it reminds me of the days when they used to do needlepoint. They just sit there, they could talk, they'd watch a movie, do needlepoint. Nothing terribly significant. Turns out to be beautiful, but nothing. It's just handiwork. To God, creating all that exists. What is that like? I'm just messing around. <laughs> Doing a little needlepoint, no big. Not for him. Everything that exists, exists in God. He fills all things. A.W. Tozer says, how do you reconcile a verse that says he, f- he fills all things with the idea that all things are in him? And his answer was this, of course he fills all things like a bucket at the bottom of the ocean is filled with ocean. And furthermore, the true Jesus is not just the creator of the world, he is the sustainer of it as well. And so Paul says, all things were created by him and for him, and in him all things hold together. And we looked at that last week as well. But there's more. The true Jesus is not only the image of God, the Son of God, and the power of God. Number four, he is the majesty of God. Verse 18. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself would come to have first place in everything. 
What could be more precious to God on earth and all it contains? The universe and all it contains. What can be more precious to God than the cosmos and all it contains? And things we have yet to see. And some of the things that we know to be true about the cosmos, we're, we're just flat wrong about. And yet it all came from his hand. What could be more precious to him than the complexity of the universe? You know what the answer to that question is? His church. God loves the church more than anything. All the rest of that stuff, the planets, the stars, you know, the the supernovas, the nebulas, whatever they are, all of that stuff, glorious in the fact that they reveal the greatness and power and creativity of God to be sure. But we are told repeatedly in the Old Testament that one day God will roll all of that up like a garment, a used, worn-out garment, and just throw it away. He'll be done with it. It's just handiwork. It's a doily, and I'm done with it. Well, why did you do all of this? There's something that was infinitely more precious to God than the cosmos, and that is his church, his bride, his bride. The church is is what everything else is about. Why did God create any of this? And what is history all about? And what is the meaning of life? It all comes down to God's commitment to glorifying his son by giving to him a people from every kindred and nation and tribe and tongue who will worship the son of God forever. The only thing God is doing in the world is building his church. I know that will strike some of you as radical. And it should. And for those of you who know that to be the truth, let it be radical afresh in your mind. Listen, this is the only institution that God said, that Jesus said he would build. I will build my church. And Paul is focused on that right here. It all comes down to this. She is God's most precious possession. She is the bride that the father will give to the groom, his son. And they will be one forever and forever. When all the universe is packaged up, rolled up, and thrown away, there will exist God in Christ and his church, his people. And the only one worthy to receive the church from the hand of God is the Lord Jesus himself. He is his rightful, the church is Christ's rightful inheritance, for he is the firstborn. And whatever inheritance God has to give, he gives to his only begotten son. And so Jesus is the head of the body. He is the head of the body called the church. And he is not only her head, he is her beginning. That is, he is her source, her origin, her creator and sustainer. Not only that, but he is also her leader. In other words, the reason every member of the church has the ultimate hope that we have of being raised from the dead comes from the very presence of God's glorious and blameless Son. And one day, if we are to stand in the presence of God, in his glory, blameless with great joy, it will be because Jesus did it first. He went before us. The author of Hebrews says, He is the author and perfecter. Author, probably better translated, pioneer. He did it first. He went before us in every capacity. He led the way. He is the firstborn from the dead. He is the firstborn from the dead. Now you remember from verse 15 that firstborn is a reference to rank and not order. Um... Jesus wasn't the first person ever to be raised from the dead. He was the first person to be glorified, but he was not the first person to be raised from the dead. But he is the highest in rank of all of those who have been raised from the dead and will be raised. Why? Because he is the icon of God, 
the Son of God and the living power of God. And notice why he is the firstborn. And this, this gives us a, a window into what God is doing in all of this. It is so that, look at, the, look at the verse, that he himself might come to have first place in, in, in what? In everything. In everything. Well, well what do you mean by everything? Ah. Well, this is what he says the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself would come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. What does God own? Everything. What will the Son own? Everything. And that includes what? Things in heaven and things in earth. Whether thrones, rulers, or authorities, he's already said that, right? That's a reference to the angelic and demonic hosts. Everything, whatever was created, if it was created, it belongs to him. For the glory of Christ and his bride, the church. In other words, it is God's design that the Lord Jesus Christ one day be looked upon by every living creature as the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. And on that day, whether willingly or unwillingly, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Yahweh, Lord, God. One day he will be irrefutably manifest as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And on that day, at the name of Jesus Your knee will bow, my knee will bow willingly, and every angel of heaven and demon of hell will bow the knee before the Son of God. If I could just um, take a side note here on this whole idea of him having first place in everything. I was looking this over again last night, and I thought, Oh, that he would have first place in everything in my life, in your life. Oh, that Jesus would already come and have first place in everything in my life. What would our homes be like if Jesus was given first place in everything? Do I do it my way or do I do it his way? Why? Because he's first. He has first place. What would our marriages be like if if each of us related to our spouse in a way that made Jesus first rather than me first? What would it be like to teach our children as best as you can teach them before the Spirit and certainly after the Spirit comes to indwell them that life is not about you first, It's not about your first cookie. It's not about you getting the best seat in the car. It's not about you having first place in the family. And woe to you parents who are teaching your children that they are first place in your home. That must be miserable. What if Jesus was first place in your home? How many people would dislike you? How many more people would dislike you if you had Jesus first place in your life? And that would be a good thing however unpleasant. And how many people would come to know the Savior if they saw in your life that Jesus Christ was first in everything? Because we've been given the Spirit and the Word, we can live in such a way that gives Jesus first place in everything. It's already that way in heaven, isn't it? And so it would be appropriate for us Even though I said earlier in John 17, that's the true Lord's Prayer. The other Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6 really isn't the Lord's Prayer. It's kind of the disciples' prayer. It's a pattern for us to pray. Nevertheless, I would say pray that prayer and mean what it says. And in this case, pray this and mean this. When Jesus says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Sometimes in the morning when I'm walking and praying, 
It's one of the things I pray. God, remind me today, this is not my kingdom. My house is not my kingdom, and I am not the king. You have first place. You have first place. Lead me. Guide me. Change me. Do whatever you will with me, but you have first place. You know what? you got to fight for that because we are hardwired to put ourselves first. And James 4 talks about what happens when you do that. You go to war with other people who want themselves to be first place. Oh, may Jesus come to have first place in our lives now while we wait for the day when his Father will make it official for all the world to see. What child is this? He is the majesty of God. He is the author of Hebrews. The author of Hebrews 8 says this. Now the main point, this is, this is the author of Hebrews writing. Now the main point to what has been said is this, that we have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Majesty sat down with majesty. God the Son sat on the throne of God the Father. And so you see, he's already there. He is already the majesty of God. The man Christ Jesus sits upon the throne. I mean, ponder that for a moment. The man Christ Jesus sits on the throne. The man Christ Jesus. Do you realize that when he was raised, he didn't become, he didn't get transformed back into spirit. He is and always will be by his own humility, his own action of coming into the world to become a man. He will always, always, always be a man and always God. Beloved, you start thinking about that and you won't be able to sleep. As David said in Psalm 139, such things are too wonderful for me. I cannot attain it. There is so much mystery to this. But you see, he's already there, the man Christ Jesus sitting on the throne. He is the majesty of God. And yet there's more. This Jesus who is not only the majesty of God, he is also the fullness of God. Look at verse 19. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. The reason that Jesus is the majesty of God is because he is in his person the fullness of God. Jesus wasn't a lesser being. He's not a lesser being. He is, what is God? What is God? Jesus is that and all of it. He is the fullness of God. And this is where biblical Christianity breaks away from all of the cultish, cultish religions of the world. Almost every major religion is willing to concede that Jesus is worthy of great respect and honor, but none of them. This is by definition what a cult is, or at least where it begins. None of them recognize him as God. You find me a quasi-Christian group who claims to be Christian, but deny that Jesus is God, they are a cult, no matter what else they believe or how sweet their families are. To them, he's an angel, or to them, he's a prophet, or to them, he's an emanation of the divine, but he's not God. And this is what the false teachers were trying to impose upon the believers in Colossae, even that far back. So Paul wrote to destroy such philosophical heresy. In case he had not already been explicit enough about Jesus' identity, Paul now makes it transparently clear. It was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. And you have to ask, if you stop here, you're going to wonder, fullness of what? Fullness of what? Fullness of all things holy, full of all things tolerant, full, thing, full of all things compassionate, 
Paul, can you tell me what fullness is? Tell me in a definitive way so I don't have to guess or assume that you're talking about the fullness of God. The fullness of what? To which Paul responds, verse 9, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells. In bodily form, in flesh, which was absolutely contrary to the philosophers of Paul's day. Flesh is evil. Spirit is good. You can't mingle the two. He was either flesh or he was spirit. If he was only flesh, he's not worth following. If he's only spirit, maybe that's the better way to go. And Paul was saying, oh, no, no, no. As he'll argue elsewhere, if he's not fully man, then he cannot represent man before God. How can we get any more explicit than this? In him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Jesus Christ is not just man. He is the fullness of God. And while it's true that there is not anything essential to man that Jesus did not possess, it is also true that there is nothing essential in being God that Jesus did not possess. He is the God-man. He is very God of very God. What child is this? He is the majesty of God. He is the fullness of God. And most importantly, if it stopped there, he'd be worthy of worship. And we we would have every reason to worship him right up to the moment we were cast in hell. But praise God, there's more. He is not only the majesty of God and the fullness of God. He's the Lamb of God. Look at verse 20. And through him, let's take a run at this from verse 19. It was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. When you discover all the truth about Jesus, it prompts us to ask, so why did such a majestic being ever come to earth in the first place? The simplest answer to that is that he came to fix a really big problem. You see, God is absolutely holy, and the heaven that God lives in is absolutely holy. And nobody gets into heaven unless they're absolutely holy. That's why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of God. You say, well, how how righteous is that? Very last verse of that chapter, he says, therefore you must be perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. You say, it's impossible. I was sharing the gospel with a couple of guys uh, a week or so ago who came to our door to, um, to talk to me about my roof. I think I mentioned them before. But they were having a, a fun time with me, and I was enjoying talking with them and sharing the gospel with them. And we got to the part of, so if you were to stand before God today, would he find you innocent or guilty? And both of their heads went down, and their countenance changed. You see, God can't let anything into his heaven that is not as holy as he is. We would mess it up. We need something. We need to be forgiven. We need our sin debt repaid. But it's not good enough for us to have a big fat zero on our record on the ledger sheet. There has to be real righteousness. There is a righteousness that we, I I often say this, and, and, and I say it repeatedly so you'll be able to say it. There is a righteousness that we desperately need, we don't have, and we can't earn. So how am I ever going to be as good as God? I've already blown that. 10,000 times I've already blown that. And that's the problem. This is a really big problem. And every time I explain this to someone, they go, how can anybody get in? That that seems like an unfair standard. I mean, nobody's going to get to go to heaven. 
And to which I often say, you're right, if this is the only part of the equation. But there's another part, and it consists of two words, but God. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which we, he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Man is not holy. We whom God created for his own pleasure became desperately wicked by our willful disobedience, by Adam's first and then ours. And so the relationship between man and God is broken and needing repair. So, because of that great love with which he loved us, Jesus laid aside all the rights and privileges of being eternal God. He came to earth to reconcile God to man. He came to satisfy God's holy and just wrath against sin. And what is the required punishment for sin? Paul says, Romans 6, 23, the wages or the payment for sin is death. What you get for being a sinner is eternal judgment. Left to himself, every man born into the world would face eternal punishment that he deserves. What sin earns is death, and all of us have sinned, so all of us are on the slate to die. The only way the relationship between God and man can be reconciled was for God himself to come to earth, to make propitiation for the wrath of God. And to grant us a righteousness that we desperately needed. And so he came as a real human being to represent us before the judgment seat of God. He came to be the mediator between God and men. We're studying the book of John. This is what John is all about. Jesus came as our mediator. And so precisely the right time, Jesus was born of a woman. Like every human baby. He lived 33 years to fulfill the righteous requirements of God's law. And then he died on the cross to fulfill the righteous penalty of that law. And he did both as our substitute. He did both on our behalf. So that we who were dead in our trespasses and sins could be made alive together with Christ. In other words, Jesus came to be the Lamb of God. At the very beginning of his ministry, John the Baptist made this clear. And, and the Jews were shocked. What do you mean by that? Behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. They understood lambs being slaughtered. They understood the sacrificial system. But they didn't understand that the Messiah would come and be murdered like a lamb. John the Baptist did. He gave himself as a sacrificial lamb, Jesus did, to pay the penalty of all who would believe. And so, by so doing, he, he made peace with God for us through the blood of his cross. That's what makes Christmas truly amazing. It doesn't have anything to do with Santa. It doesn't have anything to do with the gifts we give. I mean, how many of you, when you received a gift, thought, this is what Jesus must have felt when the wise men came. We just take it and we go, wow, this is great. Thank you for thinking of me. This is what makes Christmas truly amazing. There's nothing about sinful man by which we can recommend ourselves to God. In our truly honest moments, we know that deep down inside, we are sinful and undeserving of anything from God. But because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, helpless in our sin, Christ died for us. Christ died in our place. So what's Christmas all about? It's about this child. But it wouldn't be any Christmas at all if this child didn't grow up to do something. 
And every moment of his life from birth unto his death, he did something perfect. Every moment, he did something perfect. His righteousness was as good as God. So that now there is a righteousness that can be placed on your account while God in his mercy takes all of your sin and gives it to Jesus. And that's why the cross. That's why the blood of his cross. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on your behalf so that you might become the righteousness of God in him. God treated Jesus as if he lived your life so he could treat you as if you had lived Christ's perfect life. Beloved, that's what makes the gospel. I know that's Easter, but it all started at Christmas. What child is this? He's the image of God. He's the son of God. He's the power of God. He's the majesty of God. He's the fullness of God. He's the lamb of God. He is very God of very God and nothing less. C.S. Lewis once famously wrote about this truth by saying this. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. Like this. Quote, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Lewis writes, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says that he's a poached egg, or else he would be a devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool. You can spit on him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let not any of us come to, come to him with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He does not intend to. So who do you say Jesus is? This, beloved, is the most important question you'll ever answer. This is the most important question you'll ever answer. I mentioned earlier how in Matthew 16, Jesus pressed this question upon his disciples. Everybody was asking, who is this man? Who is this man? People had all kinds of answers. He's John the Baptist. He's one of the prophets. Maybe he's Elijah. Maybe he's Jeremiah. Maybe he's Moses, the great prophet. And Jesus pressed this upon his disciples, and he said, who do you say that I am? And filled with the Spirit in that rare moment, the Apostle Peter said this, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responded, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my Father who is in heaven. It's the same thing the Apostle Paul would say later. Nobody says Jesus is Lord apart from the Holy Spirit. But maybe the Holy Spirit is saying that very thing to you this morning. Perhaps the Holy Spirit is revealing this to you this morning with a kind of clarity and meaning that you've never experienced before. So many of your testimonies are like that. My testimony is like that. I heard the gospel 10,000 times, but then there was that once, that once. And the Holy Spirit moved with such clarity and insight. It was as if I had never heard the gospel before. And maybe that's you. Maybe it's you. I plead with you. Do not hesitate. Don't hesitate for a moment to reach out with the hand of faith and receive what God is offering you in Christ right now. He is your only Savior. He is your only hope. He is your only reconciliation with God. And he loves you. And he took your place on the cross. Don't come to him in gratitude for that. Come to him in faith. Trust him. Trust the work that he finished on your behalf. 
And whoever comes to him, Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. So who do you say Jesus is? All eternity hangs on that question. Because you cannot know God if you don't know and believe the true identity of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we know who Jesus is. So many of us in this room, not because we figured it out. Your Bible was like words without meaning on every page for me until your Holy Spirit changed my heart and I believed. Would you do that now, Lord? Holy Spirit, would you so move in the hearts of your people, not just adults, but I pray, perhaps children here, young people, that they can't hardly help themselves in running to the cross right now. Lord, reveal to them afresh their helplessness to deal with their own sin and their need for God to save them and transform them in Christ. Give them grace now, Father, just as you did with Peter on that day. Give it now. And help us, Father, who already know you and struggle against the flesh to worship you every day. Give us, Father, fresh glory. Help us to see the glory of Christ with eyes that, that have had the cataracts removed again, to see it in all of its color and brilliance. May we see Jesus for who he is and worship him as such and long for the day when we can see you face to face. Lord, we entrust all of this to your care, knowing that you are good and you do good to your people. We praise you for it in Jesus' name.